You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Welcome to Sojourn. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy and privilege uh, to proclaim the truth of God's Word from Hebrews uh, chapter 10 this morning. If you're a guest, just want to reiterate the welcome that Liz gave you. Um, we really do believe uh, that the church is first and foremost a people to belong to rather than simply uh, an event to attend on a Sunday. And so would love uh, to get to know you in any one of those contexts, um, whether that's uh, after the gathering over in the gallery, whether that's sharing a meal together uh, throughout the week or, uh, or even through the Connect cards. So um, I'll be over in the gallery at the conclusion of the gathering and would love to put a name to a face, especially um, if you've filled out uh, that Connect card uh, this morning. So uh, I also just want to give you one more just sort of exhortation to be at First Monday Prayer. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill uh, said that by our attitude to prayer, meaning our, our, our lack of sort of engagement in the world of prayer, that we communicate uh, that what God started by His Spirit, we can accomplish in the flesh. Um, and so essentially what he's saying is that um, when we don't pray, we believe in our own self-sufficiency. Uh, and I don't know about you, but uh, I've tried that, <laughs> uh, and it doesn't work out very well. And so, uh, I, and I don't want us to be a church uh, that leans on its own ability uh, when it comes to what God has called us both to do and to be. Uh, I want to be filled with the Spirit, knowing that um, that is what is going to sustain uh, my life and my godliness and the good of this neighborhood uh, for the long term. So please come and join us for that. Uh, That's, again, tomorrow night at 7 p.m. If you don't mind, I'm going to pray right now before we start, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you uh, so much for this morning, Lord, that we uh, are here gathered together um, with the saints. Um, Lord, I pray uh, that even though this may feel ordinary or routine, Lord, that we would recognize what it is that is really taking place here, what it is that you, by your Spirit, endeavor to do, not only in us, but through us in our time together. And so, Lord, would your Spirit come and would it minister to us through your Word, Lord, your Word that is not only uh, sung, not only read, but preached. Um, We know that we need you in this time. So, Lord, would you satisfy us with you and with you alone? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start a little bit differently this morning. I want us to just go back in time, uh, and not very far, just 30 minutes. Um, But go back in time 30 minutes, um, and as the band plays their opening instrumental, I want to want you to imagine with me um, a set of curtains opening to the beginning of of a drama, the beginning of a play. Imagine if everything and everyone on this stage were to disappear, if this curtain were to roll back, what would we see in the background? What is it that is taking place when we... uh, the, the, the saints of Jesus, the family of God, gather together on a Sunday morning. I think we could, we could picture it like this if we were to picture it in a, sort of a more artistic uh, rendition, right? Imagine 
God Almighty Himself calling us into worship in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In that moment, we are immersed in a sea of divine glory and we breathe out by our very nature praise to the Lord Almighty. And then out of nowhere, there is darkness. Uh, And it's not just a little bit dark, it's a gaping darkness, and in that moment we are left in despair. But in the midst of that darkness, a man steps forward and his voice is like a trumpet, his robe is like a storm cloud, his eyes burning like fire, his hair is white as snow, and from his tongue proceeds a sword. His presence humbles us, and we recognize that we can't rightly stand before Him. And so what happens is, almost out of our control, we are forced to be seated. As though we were not in control of our own bodies, we look upon this man and we recognize that before Him, death is the surest, clearest, and only possible verdict. And yet from that same man, a voice trumpets, assuring us, don't be afraid, you are safe with me. And so we are restored to our standing posture and we, with humble confidence, rise to our feet. And we begin to sing again, but this room can't contain the glory. The roof is ripped away and we are summoned into the heavenly places. We stand awestruck in the threshold of the throne room and we join countless voices from a throng of men and women all clothed in white singing the praises of God alongside angelic creatures that we can't even begin to describe with words. And in that moment, a scroll is opened. A decree is cast down from the throne, from the king himself, and that decree is carried by bolts of lightning, booms of thunder, the earthquakes, and everything that we see begins to undergo change. And we realize that we are caught up in the midst of a war, a deadly, bloody battle. But upon closer inspection, this war looks more like a harvest. This war looks more like a victorious procession. Millions of people, battle-scarred, wounded, torn to pieces, march through the streets, dancing, singing with joy in the midst of their suffering. The sky is raining down bread and wine, and the masses are satiated and satisfied. And one last time, the trumpeting voice speaks. And he says, I'm blessing you to be a blessing. Go to your homes, go to your jobs, be my witnesses, and dance for joy as those who will soon inherit glory. Go in peace. Brothers and sisters, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, then this is the drama of a Sunday gathering. You see, we've talked a lot about our neighborhood parishes over the past several weeks, and that was warranted and good. It's quite obvious that we place a lot of value on the neighborhood parish as a smaller expression of this local body of believers. But the neighborhood parish has its limitations. It has its limitations in that it simply cannot provide all that we need for life and godliness. 
The Sunday gathering is also indispensable to your Christian life and to the health of this church. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're just going to walk through our, our liturgy every Sunday so that when we arrive here, we are more mindful of what it is that we are asking the Lord through Jesus and by the power of His Spirit to do among us. And so let's look at Hebrews to tell us what we are doing and why we are doing what we are doing. I'm going to read uh, the scripture again all the way through, and this is what it says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so again, this morning, we're going to discuss uh, Sojourn's liturgy um, and some of you may say, what does that word mean? And uh, it's really fairly simple. Um, a, a, a liturgy is what structures and orders our Sunday gathering. If you've been to more than one Sunday at Sojourn, you maybe um, would recognize sort of the common pieces that happen every single week, whether it's a call to worship, an assurance to pardon, uh, the word preached, communion, those kinds of things. That structure that order is our liturgy. A liturgy is a regular practice that shapes what we love. So here's the thing. Every church has a liturgy, right? Some churches are very informal with their liturgy. Some churches are very, very formal with their liturgy. And some of them fall somewhere in between. Uh, at Sojourn, we probably fall somewhere uh, in between. But this word liturgy comes from a couple Greek words that means uh, the public work of the people, right? It's our public response to what God has done on our behalf. But let's take care with that definition, right? We do respond in our liturgy with words and actions throughout our time together. There is work for us to do on Sunday mornings in giving of praise to the Lord, but our liturgy is not fundamentally about what we do, right? Our liturgy is fundamentally about the work of God. And that's the main idea that I'm hoping to communicate today, that on Sundays, God welcomes us as His children into His house. And it's there that He serves us, forgives us, instructs us, feeds us, and sends us. That God ministers to us through us, that the entire liturgy tells a story of God's action and our response to that action. And so let's just walk through it piece by piece. To do this, let's, let's go to our text. In verse 22, it says these words, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now in the original Greek, this was a well-known expression of corporate worship. It was a liturgical expression 
When we read that phrase, let us draw near, the author of Hebrews is calling us into the sanctuary. In fact, that's the imagery that he's giving us in verse 19 when he says, we have confidence to enter into the holy places. He's inviting us in. He's calling us into a place of worship. We are being summoned as a people to this place. And so every Sunday, we open our Sunday gathering with a call to worship. What we are saying in that moment and what God is saying to us is, draw near to me. So listen, this may sound nitpicky, but I can't overstate the importance of getting here early and not missing this key part of the gathering. In it, we acknowledge that we are gathering because God has summoned us and He's made us able to enter into His presence by the work of Jesus. That is a marvel and a miracle that we behold in the call to worship. This also informs the reason that we even do a Sunday gathering in the first place, right? We don't gather because it's what Christians have always done or because Sundays work best for all of our collective schedules. We gather because God wants to renew His promises to us and give to us a taste, a small taste though it may be, of heaven. Now, in today's world, there are many reasons, many reasons why we might neglect to gather together corporately. It could be weekend trips to visit family or friends. It could be college football. It could be, uh, for for the few of us with children in here, it could be their activities, their, their sporting events. It could be that there are better preachers on podcasts. I'm well aware of that. It could be that there are better music available on iTunes or YouTube uh, that you enjoy more than what is available to you in any number of churches across the city. Now, let me be, let me be clear, right? I'm not saying that weekend trips are inherently sinful or that our children's gifts and talents should be suppressed or that sojourn's pastors should feel free to preach bad sermons. That's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. But let's be honest, these are very real reasons, very real reasons that we might neglect to worship together corporately on a Sunday. And apparently there were real reasons in the early church too, because why else would the author of Hebrews tell us in verse 25 to not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some? So this is not a new problem. This is not because we have more distractions than they used to, right? This is an age-old, a millennia-old problem for the church. Clearly, some people, even in this time, were neglecting to meet together. So then after the call to worship, what happens? We sing together, right? God's people have always sung together. It dates back to Israel's earliest days when we read in verse 24 that we are to consider how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds. Singing should be at the top of our list. But to the world outside, it must seem pretty strange. So why do we sing? Why is worship through song 
a universal practice among the body of Christ, that, that in all of the things that Christians around the world can disagree on, why is it that singing is something that we don't? Well, I would argue that it's because Christian worship is essentially holy battle. Right in Ephesians chapter 6, what does Paul say? He says that our warfare is not, quote, against flesh and blood, but is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the battle that the Christian wages is not with sword and chariot, gun and bomb. It is with prayers and especially the prayers that we sing together, which is essentially what's taking place when we gather together and sing songs. Right on multiple occasions over the past few weeks, we've talked about uh, the fact that we are priests, right? First Peter um, chapter 2 uh, in verse 9 tells us that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But I want to focus in on that idea of priesthood, right? Now, before Jesus came in the Old Testament, the priesthood was a very specific collection of people, right? A, a people that mediated the relationship between God and the rest of the nation of Israel. And these men served God by ministering in the temple, sacrificing animals for the sins of the people. They were spiritual warriors. In fact, the armor of God that's described in Ephesians 6 that we just talked about is describing the dress of the high priest. So again, these priests, much like us, were spiritual warriors and part of their job was to wage war through song. They offered their very breath as a sacrifice. So what we're doing when we sing together is we are offering through song ourselves as living sacrifices, commissioned to sing in the presence of God on behalf of the world. Right? It's through Jesus that we, the church, are a royal priesthood. And so as priests, singing is a part of our job description. Our songs rise into God's presence as a fragrant offering. We, with one voice, in spite of any multitude of things that, that could cause us to, to disagree, with one voice, we praise God and we encourage one another and we cry out for justice. And our God hears and the world is changed. And just as a quick side note, when we worship together, we really do offer our breath and our bodies as living sacrifices. So it's absolutely appropriate to give thought to our posture when we are giving praise to the Lord. We worship not just with our voices, but with our whole bodies. You see, if we only rely upon the words of the liturgy to shape what we love, then what we end up doing is we elevate the experience of the mind above that of the body. And Christians shouldn't do that because what we are is embodied souls. God is equally concerned with both. And so the posture that we take in worship also shapes what we love. We have to teach not only our minds, but our bodies what it means to praise the Lord. And the Bible teaches us to lift our hands when we sing but it also teaches us to sit and kneel, which is why we do that for our time of confession. So let's talk about confession and assurance. 
As we said earlier, right, in the call to worship, we've been summoned into God's presence. But coming into God's presence is potentially dangerous for a sinner. This is why Isaiah in chapter 6, when he, when he comes before the throne of God, says the first words out of his mouth are, Woe is me. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips. He's immediately stricken with the reality of his sinfulness. Right? It's for this very reason that the Old Testament book of Leviticus even exists. It is essentially instructions about how to draw near to God in His prescribed manner. So near the beginning of our time together on Sundays, we set aside time for confession and for repentance, right? If we look back at verse 22 of Hebrews 10, it says this, let us draw near, right, with a true heart, with a true heart. And what is a true heart? A true heart is a heart that is repentant. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says this, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? So 1 John tells us that if we say we have no sin, if we are unwilling or think we have nothing for which we, we, we must repent, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's impossible to have a true heart unless we are honest with who we are at the very core of our being. A true heart is a heart that sees the truth, that we are in sinners in need of grace. And so God calls His people to repent of their sins all throughout the Scriptures. It's fundamentally a call to humble ourselves, forsake our sin, return to God. And often that is expressed in prayer. And so what we do when we're together is we take a moment and we pray privately, right? We acknowledge those things before the Lord. We say, yes, we are sinners in need of your grace, Lord. But then to remind us of our unity, to remind us that we're not alone, mired in our sin, we say together, out loud in a corporate prayer, God, we are sinners in need of your grace together. And you know what? God responds to our repentance by His grace. He responds by comforting us as His children, by reminding us that we are in fact His by the blood of Jesus. And so we go from a confession and a repentance to what we call the assurance of pardon. Right? The Bible tells us that we have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's what Hebrews 10 tells us together. Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right? This, this imagery of, of blood sprinkling is foreign to us, but it refers back to the process of killing animals to atone for sin. Right? This is, again, what the high priest would do. They would slaughter the animal. They would sprinkle the blood on the altar to make atonement for the sins of the people. The author of Hebrews is telling us that now in the blood of Jesus, we have been sprinkled clean. Our sins have been atoned for. The payment has been made. And so because of Jesus, we who repent are pardoned, assuredly so. And this in and of itself is another call from God, right? 
It's God calling us into true belief, right belief, where the doubts of the weak, where the the sins of the weak that we have experienced, where we have looked in the mirror and said, gosh, I just don't know if God could really love me. In the assurance of pardon, we're being invited, we're being reminded, yes, He does surely love me. So when Joseph, or whoever's leading worship, gets up here and tells us that if we look to Jesus, forgiveness of sins is given in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I want you to hear that, not just as a word from Joseph's mouth, or as cute words that we internalize to make us feel better for a week. I want you to really believe it. I want you to hear that as a word from God's mouth itself. And I want you to trust Him. I want you to do that whether or not you feel forgiven. Because whether or not you feel forgiven is irrelevant. If you are in Christ, you are. Period. End of story. What He speaks about you is more true than what you speak to yourself about you. If if you repent... God declares you forgiven, and that means that you are forgiven. You no longer have the right to cling to your guilt. We really are sinners, but we really can be assured of our pardon. Again, as it says in verse 22, we really can have true hearts in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Why? Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, washed. Our bodies washed with pure water. From this place of pardon, we then sing a song of thanksgiving and pass the peace of Christ to one another. This isn't simply a turn and greet your neighbor moment. It's not simply an opportunity for the band to get off the stage. Right? We've been declared forgiven. We have peace with God, and we're called to share that peace with others. So even that simple element of our liturgy is intentional in that it trains us to trust God's forgiveness and in response, reach out to our neighbor. From there, we move into a time of instruction. We move to the sermon and what's happening during the sermon. In part, the weekly sermon and gospel proclamation helps us to obey verse 23 when it tells us to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. But too often, I think we view preaching merely as an event in which God is the topic. Sermons are for data processing. But sermons historically have been viewed by the church as a preaching as an event in which God is both the topic and the actor. In other words, preaching is not simply a pastor talking about God. Preacher is God talking. Preaching is God speaking through human beings to human beings. Now, that doesn't mean that you should begin stapling my sermons to the back of your Bible. Uh, That's not at all what what I'm getting at. Sermons are to be preached with authority, but sermons remain subject to authority, the authority of Scripture. And as we say every week, we go to the Scriptures because it's there that we see the person and the work of Jesus most clearly revealed. 
So preaching is powerful only when Christ is preached. But let me also say this. Even if you don't always feel the power of preaching, preaching is powerful. We may not feel God's presence in every instance. We may not experience His grace in the same measure every week. But just like the assurance of power, the power, I'm sorry, just like the assurance of pardon, the power is in God's objective promise, not our subjective ability to obtain what God promises. So the promise of God is what's objective, right? Our experience is not. Now, you might say that I'm just giving myself an out, right? That I'm hedging my bets, like for those weekends when it's been a long week, maybe I didn't prep as well, or maybe it was just, you know, nobody bats a thousand, so you struck out this week, man, you know? But I'm really not. Um, Let me put it this way. Who remembers what they ate on Tuesday for breakfast? We got one person. That's great. So, oh, same thing every day. Yeah, so great. Awesome. I'm going to preach the same sermon every week. Um, Right, some of you may remember. Some of you may remember, but most of you don't. Does that make that meal any less sustaining? Not at all. Of course not, right? You were sustained and still alive today because of a lot of simple and likely very average meals. When you're in your 60s, you, you, you will have a handful that you will remember, but you will be alive because of the thousands of ones that you don't. Preaching is the same way. There's going to be some that minister you, to you deeply in that moment and praise the Lord that by His Spirit, He was generous to you in that. But there's going to be a whole lot of them that you forget that are eventually going to lead to the full measure of Christ being expressed in you. Do we have this sort of confidence in the power of the Spirit working through ordinary Sundays, ordinary songs, ordinary sermons, ordinary sacraments? Do we trust that over the course of decades, these ordinary things accomplish something extraordinary in us growing into the likeness and image of Jesus? Listen, there's no eight-minute abs in the Christian life or in real life, so... Are we okay with that? Is it okay for the Sunday gathering to be ordinary? Do we have faith to see what God is doing through ordinary Sundays? One more thought on sermons. The purpose of preaching, right, the preacher's goal must be to stir up faith and to lead us into deeper communion with God. And within our liturgy, that means that the sermon should lead us to the Lord's table, what we call communion or the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. A sermon without the Lord's Supper is like coming together with your family to talk about Thanksgiving dinner, turkey, dressing, potatoes, casserole, but never actually sitting down with your family to eat Thanksgiving dinner. So having heard the word preached, we see the word put on display in what we call sacraments, right? The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are meant to dramatize spiritual realities in physical form. The human body, again, is more than just a container for your brain. We are body and soul beings, and the liturgy is designed to teach our bodies, not just our minds. We hear the word through the ear, 
And then we partake of the word through the eyes, nose, mouth. So what's happening when we come to the table, right? Communion, which always comes after the sermon. Well, God knows that our faith needs strengthening on a weekly basis. He knows it. That's not a surprise to Him. And so He confirms His promises to us through these sacraments, right? God gave us something to hold on to. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality, and it helps us to keep on believing. So hopefully what's happened on any given Sunday is that we've heard the Word of God faithfully preached. We've been reminded of what God has done for us, that He has given us rest. It's that simple. That He's given us rest. This is illustrated really clearly in the book of Ephesians when uh, Paul tells us that we've been raised up with Jesus, right? And that we've been seated in the heavenly places. So we don't stand with Him in the heavenly places. We sit with Him in the heavenly places. Sitting is a restful posture. So we rest in His presence, right? So Jesus is on the throne of heaven and we reign alongside Him in a posture of rest. Right? Throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, God's people are invited to His table. So as Christians, eating and drinking at the Lord's table acknowledges the rest that we've been given. Communion is meant to be a feast of joy and thanksgiving, not simply a silent, solemn, introspective snack. In fact, the Lord's, privilege, or the Lord's Supper is the greatest privilege on earth, and we should partake of it accordingly with joy, celebration, and thanksgiving because we've been invited to recline at table with God. So I want us to try something a little bit different this week when we come and take communion. When you come up here to receive the communion elements, I want you to return to your seat before actually eating it. I want you to sit down. I want you to take that passive posture and in your physical posture, remind yourself what you're being invited to do. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest that we can rest in the accomplished work of Jesus, the broken body of Jesus on our behalf, the shed blood of Jesus by which we are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, as Hebrews so wonderfully reminds us. So that when we sit before the Lord, we acknowledge that we are recipients of grace and contribute nothing at all to all that He has done on our behalf. So here's what happens, right? The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the rest and reign we enjoy in communion with Jesus, and we partake of that rest by faith. Something deeply spiritual takes place in that moment. Jesus really does commune with us. He meets with us in this sacrament. He gives us this communion meal that nourishes us. And having been nourished, God then sends us back into the world, to obey His instructions for us, which brings us to the benediction and the conclusion of our gathering.
right? The word benediction means a word of blessing. This is more than a dismissal, right? Put simply, we receive the benediction as a word from God Himself, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you, lift up His countenance and give you peace. What are we saying? We're saying, now go back to your homes and to your neighborhoods and to your jobs. That's what God is saying to us. And He says, be my witnesses in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is the conclusion of our liturgy. So that's a lot of information, right? So what's, what's really the point in all this? What's the big picture? This is the big picture. Each and every Sunday, we rehearse the gospel story. That's what we do. We rehearse the drama of the gospel together. Each and every Sunday gathering, a microcosm of the story that we're living together as the people of God is put on display. We are summoned in the name of Jesus. We forsake our sins through corporate confession. We are once again assured of our place in the kingdom We ascend to the heavenlies with Christ. We hear the word proclaimed. We fellowship there at the Lord's table. And then we are commissioned back into the world to be the people of God. If we wanted to sum all this up in one sentence, the the Sunday gathering is covenant renewal. That just means that God is reaffirming to us His promises. He accomplishes this by calling us together and serving us, and He desires to do it every seven days. That has been His pattern for thousands and thousands of years. And that alone demonstrates the importance of the Sunday gathering. That's all the reason that we need to make every effort to be here week after week. This is not a ploy to get attendance to be higher so that we can keep saying, well, look at our graph. It's up and to the right. The Lord is summoning us together to minister to us. So when we are absent on Sunday mornings, we miss out on more than just a sermon. You cannot podcast the work of God through sacraments and liturgy. You can't. It is utterly insufficient We absolutely must prioritize this time together. Parents in the room, there's not that many of us now, but there will be growing numbers. Would it not be a source of great comfort and pride if your children actually looked forward to a Sunday or to your weekly parish gathering? Absolutely it would. So will they learn that from us? Will our children learn to value gathering with the church by watching us value gathering with the church? It would be to their eternal benefit for them to observe us prioritizing this day, arriving on time, serving on volunteer teams, welcoming the newcomer, engaging with the liturgy, singing songs of praise, confessing sin, listening to the sermon actively, partaking of the table joyfully, giving of our finances generously. And some of you are like, I don't have kids, so I'm off the hook. But if you don't have children, please do it for my child. Please do it for my daughter. 
do it for that non-Christian coworker that you've been meaning to invite. Let's treat this gathering like we want our neighbors to treat this gathering, as a time to come and to meet with God Himself alongside brothers and sisters in the faith. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. You see, the Sunday gathering has the power to change the world. By the power of the Holy Spirit, liturgy teaches us to love what we were created to love. It teaches us the habits and patterns of Christian living. living. In short, liturgy changes people. And when people change, culture change. And when cultures change, the world changes. Either we believe that that's a gross overstatement, or we believe that God really does commune with us on Sundays. And if God really does commune with us uniquely on Sundays, if He really does commune not just with this local body of believers on Sundays, but with millions of people in millions of churches throughout hundreds of nations across the world, then the world is being changed as we speak. Sometimes that change is dramatic. Some would call that revival. But sometimes that change is too small for us to even perceive. But even when the world seems to be falling apart around us, that change is nonetheless taking place Sunday by Sunday. Let's believe that and let's value our time together accordingly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, Again, thank you that we are gathered together in worship as your people proclaiming that you have made us to be your people through the person and work of Jesus. And Lord, so as we come to the table this morning, may we partake of this joyfully, knowing that we have been provided rest as we come and take the sacraments and return to our seats to a a posture of rest, sitting, and we take in the nourishment of bread and juice. May we find rest there. Pray for those of us who are weary of soul this morning, Lord, that you would commune with them in extravagant measure by your Spirit, that they would truly sense and feel the assurance of their pardon, the provision of grace and mercy in the broken body and blood of Jesus. And Lord, that you would continue ordinary Sunday by ordinary Sunday to form us into the extraordinary image and likeness of Jesus. And that you would do this by your grace, through the power of the Spirit, for our great joy and for the good of this great city. We love you. We thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' good name, amen.